0: My name is Sam Clement and welcome to The Love of Cinema, a picture house podcast proudly supported by Kia, powering independent cinema. And oh boy, what a month for cinema it is. It is January. It's 2023. It's the first podcast of the new year and... I'm excited. We're in award season. All of the best films from the last 12 months are all about to be released. We are on the eve of something really exciting. There are so many big films coming out every single week uh, for the next few weeks. Now full disclosure. We cannot cover all of them on the podcast. We have picked a few of our highlights, which we'd like to talk about uh, with you. What we also do every episode is invite two new guest film critics on to share their opinions on the movies. Henry Barnes and Maha Albadrawi discuss our latest releases, our big films from January, and maybe a cheeky one from December uh, later in the episode. And yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing what they think of the films too. So, We're going to cover a few movies. We've also got a special interview uh, with a director of a a big film for January coming up too. Again, more on that later. I'll introduce you when the time comes. So, like, if you were in a cinema, please grab a popcorn, put your feet up, grab a beverage, have a relax, and enjoy this first episode of 2023. Thank you for listening. It's really nice to be back, and I'm so excited for the awards season films. It's my favourite time of year first up on the podcast we have got a brand new film from steven spielberg not 12 months ago since our last steven spielberg film we are delighted to be playing uh, the director the great director's uh, latest film *The fableman's uh, which is a very personal film from steven spielberg based on his own life growing up and one of those rare films which has a co-writing credit for from spielberg himself i think and now i may be wrong but i think the last film that had a co-writing credit from steven spielberg on was et which was up 41 years ago now Uh, so this is very special indeed the fabelman opens at picture house cinemas on the 27th of january and i will pass over to maha and henry to discuss the movie the lights change how everything looks it's hard to find our house
1: Ours is the dark house with no lights.
0: In this family, it's the scientists versus the artists.
2: Sammy's on my team, takes after me.
1: So Maha, you've just come out of watching the Fablemans. Uh, This is Steven Spielberg's semi-autobiographical film. How how semi are we talking? Like, how much is this about uh, Steven's life?
3: It's not semi. It's like quite autobiographical. Like, it's about a boy named Sammy. um, Sammy Steven. I don't know are they the same person who knows and he is growing up in 1950s 1960s america and he's got this lovely like big middle-class family uh they're jewish there's mom and dad dad is played by paul dano uh mom is played by michelle williams dad's an engineer mom is a pianist they he's got three sisters and um when he's quite young he's given He's given a train set, and he decides that he wants to film this train set crashing, and he basically like falls in love with filmmaking, and this film was really about Sammy falling in love with the art of filmmaking. As he grows up, he learns to do practical effects. He learns how to communicate with actors to get the best performances, and the camera becomes like a, a fifth character, like the fifth Beatle. <laughs> In this family like it they embrace it so he goes around filming every important moment you know they go on a camping trip and he he films it for them and then he uh, learns how to edit and there's this beautiful scene where he learns how to edit practically like linear editing which is something that you know as a editor who works in premiere like that scares me having to actually like touch film i'm like man control like command c (laughs) was it undo 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 that's all i do all the time so the camera becomes a part of the family they embrace it they're very supportive of his hobby but the camera ends up revealing a family secret by accident and sammy a teenager doesn't know what to do with this information and he starts to realize that the camera gives him a power that he's not sure he can handle and Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot for young Sammy.
1: I love that idea that something that you love and something you're passionate about can be dangerous at the same time, right? And, like, you know, it could get you into trouble. Um, And I was thinking about this film compared to Ready Player One, which was Spielberg's last film. And it's a similar kind of film about film, but in a very different way, in that Ready Player One was kind of this 80s extravaganza nostalgia fest um, that was, you know, successful and not so successful. But do you think that you need to know a lot about Spielberg's life and who he is in order to appreciate this story? Or does it kind of work on its own merits as a film about another filmmaker that is and isn't Steven Spielberg?
3: You don't need to know anything about Steven Spielberg to get this film. I obviously like grew up watching Spielberg films. I I know how his life turns out and I think that gave me some sort of comfort because, you know, Sammy does experience some hardships. He goes through he experiences anti-Semitism at school. He at one point thinks that he can't handle this responsibility that he's been given, like from his art. Like he doesn't know he wants to sacrifice his family, the people he loves for his art. But It's Steven Spielberg like we know that everything turns out okay he's going to make Jaws he's going to invent the blockbuster it's all going to be fine I think you could go into it not knowing that and still just be engrossed in this lovely family like the family life is just so it's textured and it feels real and I just wanted to spend more time with them and yeah I I think it's a really lovely world to be a part of the stakes feel really personal which again it makes it fun to watch it it's it never it didn't stress me out too much <laughs> and i need that right now <laughs>
1: <laughs> and michelle williams who, who plays his mother or his the version of his mother in this she's been hyped up she's got a golden globe nomination and it's been talked up for the oscar as well really um, what's her performance like in this <laughs> <laughs> i think i know what you're gonna tell me <laughs>
3: it's so funny that you mentioned that because it's probably like my one criticism of this film was michelle williams's performance right. yeah. So. You and I, you know, we're kind of the same generation. Like, did you grow up watching Dawson's Creek?
1: Well, I was going to mention Dawson's Creek Creek as well, right? Because there is a weird link. Like, Michelle Williams is in this. who was obviously in Dawson's Creek. But then Dawson in Dawson's a Creek. Yeah. And Dawson in yeah. Dawson's Creek wants to be Steven Spielberg, right? So there's this weird, like, threading through the years that people who grew up in the 90s can appreciate.
3: Yeah. But, like, Dawson is insufferable. Sammy is lovely so i found her performance really strange like it was it was such a performance she even does this like weird out of context dance which i know from the reactions of the other actors on screen i mean to find charming but i didn't find it charming i found it odd this is odd and it kind of felt like she was a silent film actress dropped into 2022 like her face just is so it doesn't telegraph it like blares out to the emotions that she's meant to have it's it was an odd performance i just i found it weird also her haircut is very very 1920s and this is i'm not saying everyone has to be like on trend but it it was just so jarring she just felt so out of place because the rest of the performances especially with the young cast were so natural and nuanced and easy there was like this ease that i felt throughout the film i didn't get that from her golden globes like (sighs) They gave Emily in Paris awards.
1: (laughs) So uh, the film's mummy issues aside, it sounds like it's one to go and watch.
3: Yes, definitely. 100%. Uh, It's lovely. It's warm. I want to hang out with that family. And I'm so happy for Stephen. Let's go somewhere new. See worlds we've never seen before. So that we can feel inspired. Whether you're sitting in a cinema or in one of our cars, Inspiration comes when we feel something new. That's why our electrified range is designed to take you on inspiring journeys. Kia. Proud supporter of independent cinema. Kia. Movement that
0: inspires. Well, thank you, Maha and Henry, for your first review on the podcast. Uh, the Favorman's is... A wonderful film i was lucky to see this at a preview and i know it's opened in other places around the world you might have seen reviews from american film critics but it's finally coming to the uk on the 27th of january and cannot recommend it enough it will be a big contender in the uh, the awards run in the coming weeks for sure speaking of big contenders Cannot think of a bigger contender in in so many ways. Uh, Length, budget, scale, vision, scope, ambition. Avatar, The Way of Water, the follow-up to Avatar. uh, James Cameron's long-awaited sequel uh, to his 2009 blockbuster is in cinemas now, and we didn't get a chance to review it on the December edition of the show uh, just due to when they were showing the film and when we had to record the podcast. So we overlooked... I feel uh, one of the biggest films of the year. So we uh, we've asked Henry and Maha to discuss Avatar because it is still playing in cinemas. It is a wonderful film and it will be one of those big films come awards season. I imagine this will get a lot of nominations, especially and not just, but especially in the technical categories. It's a hugely ambitious film and, and something that is very much designed to be watched on the big screen. So we asked Maha and Henry what they thought of James Cameron's latest Avatar the Way of Water. I hear her heartbeat.
3: She's so close.
2: So what does her heartbeat sound like?
3: Mighty. Hi, Henry.
1: I see you, Maha.
3: I see you, Henry.
1: <laughs> what are we doing? This is We're talking Na'vi, right?
3: We are talking Na'vi, but I've forgotten all... The only word I can remember is Nati, because that's a Tereo Maori word. And this film has some references to Tereo Maori. But anyway, so Avatar 2... Been out for a couple of weeks what do you think of it
1: i think that avatar 2 coming out of this um boy hand me a towel there's so much going on uh the way of the water has an incredibly strong current and carries you along i think if you loved avatar and you like giant uh filmmaking with heft and spectacle and things popping out of the screen that um are ludicrously wonderful in their way then you're really going to like avatar 2 the way of the water I I think there is a real interest in this film in terms of a kind of nostalgic element of harking back to filmmaking that we haven't seen in ages, right? There is something about this film that has, even though the first Avatar was made, you know, in the noughties, this film feels like a kind of 90s blockbuster in a way that we don't really see in the Marvel-dominated cinemascape anymore. There's absolutely nothing that's kind of arch or sarcastic or meta, self-aware. self-aware or meta about it at all and I think you can spin that as a positive because personally some of the Marvel stuff tends to get a little bit too arch and witty and dare I say it trite and this has a huge amount of heart in it billions and billions of dollars worth of heart in it and if you love that kind of filmmaking that is unashamedly kind of full of heart and grandiose, then I think you're really gonna have a great time with this film. What did you make of it, Maha?
3: It's very high concept, but like 21st century high concept. Like, you know, high concept is, you know, those 80s films like Top Gun, Flashdowns, which I love, like, you know, like very kind of like basic relatable ideas and very flashily uh, displayed. You know, I grew up in New Zealand and Avatar kept the New Zealand film industry employed for like five years, so thank you for that i have a friend my friend has a house now so thank you (laughs) you don't have to like listen too hard to get what's going on because as i said it's very high concept um do you game henry
1: i do i do i'm a keen gamer yeah
3: yeah so yeah i was watching it and um it felt like a game to me i'm not a gamer but my husband is a very keen gamer and it had the same kind of feel, like sometimes I walk past him in the living room and I see the games he's playing and it felt like this. And when I described it to him, he said it reminded him of Horizon so
1: Horizon Zero Dawn. Yeah. Similar, I think so, similar yeah. Title
3: yeah so do you feel the same
1: yeah i think i think i mean in terms of the plot right like so uh we join jake's uh sully and his family and he's got grown up or teenage kids now and um essentially they go to a new part of pandora once the human threat comes back again and the sky people that's little air finger thingies i'm doing sky people which is the rest of humanity come and attack and this kind of move to a new area of pandora which is water based it feels so video gamey it feels like downloadable content from a video game that there's the new characters and the new locations you can go to and again i think if you're of that audience and you really like the idea of grafting familiar characters and tropes onto a new place you're going to you're going to really go for that i also felt it was doing some interesting things in terms of talking about family i mean james cameron who's a dad to five kids and said that this was supposed to be his family movie and he has quote um experience of being the the asshole dad and sully as a dad is quite strict on his kids almost militaristic and there's an element of you know how how much guidance do you give your kids and are they ever going to listen particularly when they're teenagers and the way that it portrays that i felt was fairly realistic for a film that's got giant blue people swimming on massive squid and dodging you know uh, whales alien whales um i just uh, yeah i think there is elements of this that are interesting
3: so this film is very high concept it reminds me of that you know 80s filmmaking how would you compare this to a behemoth like top gun
1: yeah i mean we had top gun maverick out um last year and that was huge in terms of box office. It's weird to see the parallels between those two films. They're kind of both, if you like, older properties, colder properties that have been reheated. both have done stunningly successful things. They've shown that Marvel doesn't dominate the landscape in the way that we think it does. And again, there's something to that. There's some kind of nostalgia element to that. I mean, crucially, what Avatar doesn't have is the might of Tom Cruise, which, you know, you almost can't put a price on Tom and his box office drawer. But it does, again, have that spectacle and the grandiosity. And those lovely whales. I felt for those whales. There's a bit where whales talk to people. And you can't truly hate a film where whales say cute things to people, can you?
3: I grew up with watching Free Willy and yeah. Flipper. So absolutely, that went straight to my heart. That's
1: a great comparison. i tell you what, this is essentially... Free Willy with giant blue people and the odd robot telling them that they're going to die.
3: And a little bit Heart of Darkness. We got a little bit of, you know, colonialism, you know, in there.
1: One for film fans everywhere.
0: Interesting stuff there. I definitely agree with both Henry and Maha on the film. I also have to say... I loved it. I think this film is brilliant. I've seen it twice now. I fully intend on seeing it a third time. I fell in love with the first Avatar movie, which I've seen far too many times to be said out loud on a podcast. And and I just I just really went for this. It's properly escapist stuff. And before we get to our next review, we were lucky to sit down with a filmmaker this week with director Mark Forster. Really wonderful filmmaker. You would have seen his work. He directed Strangers and Fiction, The Kite Runner, Finding Neverland, and uh, a little film called Quantum of Solace, uh, one of the Daniel Craig, James Bond films. And he's back. He's got a brand new film starring Tom Hanks called A Man Called Otto. And film critic Elena Lazic went along to meet Mark whilst he was in London uh, to talk to him about his latest film, A Man Called Otto, opens on the 6th of January. So it's in cinemas right now as you're listening to this. Listen to the interview. Go and see the film.
4: I was wondering, first of all, how you got involved in the project and also if you'd actually seen um, the Swedish film A Man Called Ove, Uh, because I know it was a big success, but I don't know if you've seen it.
2: Uh, yeah, no, I, I read the book first, uh, Frederick Beckman's novel. I fell in love was the novel and then discovered that it was a film made as well and then mm-hmm. watched the movie and I thought the movie was terrific. So uh, I, I think, uh, you know, once I, I saw them both, I, f- I felt super inspired and I felt like, you know, it's uh, almost a bit like Shakespeare Shakespearean, like, in, in like Hamlet, you can see in any different culture. And I think Frederick Beckman's characters he created in the novel are so translatable into all kinds of cultures. And I thought it would be great to... Make another uh, version of the film and uh, set in the U.S. for a wider audience.
4: Did you find that there were things that you had to change quite significantly uh, because of the different context with Sweden and the U.S., or was it? pretty straight, straightforward.
2: I mean, we had to, to change a f- few things, you know, obviously in in Sweden, they have socialized medicine, they don't have that in the US. So that we had to adjust. Uh, we adjusted in the novel and the Swedish film, the immigrant, uh, there, uh, is, she's Persian-Iranian. And uh, like, we changed it to Mexican because it's across the border, it felt more natural for the US. And certain changes like this, but the inherent characters didn't change.
4: Yeah, I think the one thing that everyone always wonders about is what it's like to work with Tom Hanks and what is he like in real life?
2: Uh, You know he has a reputation to be the nicest man in Hollywood Mm -hmm. and he's truly like that I you know I've been working with him for you know developing the script and then shooting the movie for the last four years and I only seen him respectful and lovely and joyful and he's uh, he's been uh, you know just always so generous as well. So, you know, every, every rumor you hear about Tom Hanks is true. So, you know, what the great thing is about if him playing a grumpy character, is makes it easier because you still connect with him because it's Tom Hanks. If someone else would have played that, you might not have connected with him that strong.
4: Did you have to help him sort of reach that place where he would be grumpy? Because it's actually really hard to imagine him being anything but a positive <laughs> False.
2: Uh, you know he, he he's such a fine actor and he's so brilliant that you know we talked a lot about it and sometimes it's like a, a great violin player you just tell him oh play a little fast a little slower a little this so he just adjusts very very quickly and the great thing is about you know he comes from comedy also physical comedy in the 80s big splash all these movies and then became a big dramatic actor and now in a man called Otto, you can see all his talents come together between comedy, physical comedy, and and his dramatic
4: skills. And um, how did you assemble the rest of the cast? Because I was quite struck by obviously they're you know side players in a way, you know supporting characters, but um, they all feel very, very richly developed. Um, and I guess that's kind of the point of the movie. Uh, Otto initially doesn't want to be involved with any of these people, mm-hmm. and eventually you know, learns that they are people and they are interesting. But yeah, so how did you cast these actors? I was especially struck by um, Mariana Trevino, which, who I didn't know at all, but she, she's such a, a spark of you know, joy in the film.
2: Yeah, Mariana Trevino, who plays Marisol, is a Mexican actress, and uh, she's very well known there it's been, and has a large big career there. My cast director called me up and said, oh, can you uh, check your inbox? And it was the beginning of the casting process and I opened my inbox and there was only one actress. It was Mariana. I said, well, where is the rest? I said, no, no, just watch her. So I watched her and she was auditioning in a hotel room in Spain and she was on an iPhone and she literally was just talking into the phone by herself. She didn't have another actress to, or actor to read with. So she like, imagine talked to Otto, imagine he talked to her husband, and the scene where she pushed her foot in the door and she suddenly plays the scene and I'm at the beginning confused and then suddenly I started laughing. I said, this is brilliant. And it's the first time in my life I didn't see another actress. I just said, that's, that's her. I don't need See anybody else, and it was so convincing. And then, so once I casted her, uh, the ensemble slowly came together. We casted uh, her husband Manuel, and and then all, all the other characters. And I think you know, ultimately, it's like this community of of neighbors mm-hmm. is a very uh, you know sort of ensemble cast that uh, makes Otto even more stand out because they're all very different.
4: What was the actual dynamic like on the set? I imagine because it's you know we can sense watching the film that some of some of them are closer than others. Um, Some of them, you know, they they like each other, but not necessarily, you know, know each other well. But there's a sort of degree of respect. There's all these nuances to friendship in a way that that's kind of what the film is about. And so how did you sort of, I guess, calibrate that between the characters, but also just working with the actors together? Because, yeah, I imagine you shot during, obviously you shot during the pandemic. So did that also affect how these dynamics developed in the film?
2: Yeah, I mean, we, we you know, we, I, the two movies back to back to the pandemic Whitebird, which comes out next year, and then Otto. And, and it's like shooting the pandemic isn't easy. Mm-hmm. But, but also, I think, yeah, I think ultimately, I, I don't see in this particular case of Otto, uh, you know, to the, the key was to have. All the backstory from all these different characters and understand who they are in relation to each other, in what time frame, and what is the backstory. And even we don't explicitly tell the audience the backstory. The actors know it, and you feel it. How their friendship is in different ways. This, with Juanita, who plays Anita and, and Ruben, that their, their relationship is Otto, and obviously Jimmy's relationship is Otto, and and so forth. It's it's just all these shades of what. What where the French is and has been for years, and did you feel it even sort of the past versus I'm te- me as a storyteller filmmaker telling you explicitly what what their past relationship is about.
4: And so, at the editing stage, did you sort of find yourself sort of paring down some stuff, explaining less, or changing the, that because it, yes. the structure is. Uh, it's linear, but there's also lots of flashbacks and lots of, you know, information that comes later on.
2: It's sort of the silver lining between comedy and drama, and, and it's ultimately Finding that silver lining between comedy and drama, and how much uh, information you give, and and I also wanted to not spend too much time in the flashback because once you dive into a flashback, it's very hard to come out of it and come uh, and emotionally connect you to present day again. So it's like connecting that with with sound and music often that you can go back and forth uh, without being lost in the flashback and mainly staying in the present day storyline, but giving you enough information so you understand where Otto is coming from because all. Ultimately, a lot of people who are bitter or angry, they come from a place of sadness and grief and to understand that trajectory of the character.
4: But yeah, so how did you work on this? Because the the film is kind of, uh, it's a very obviously uh, life-affirming film and very positive and very, you know, about life being worth living. Uh, But it has some genuinely really dark moments in it. And so I was wondering, how did you think about approaching them? And how did you sort of try to control the tone. And also, how did you play with music in that sense? Because there are quite a few moments in the film that a song comes in and it, it kind of feels like it, it helps the transition in a way into something either more emotional or more lighthearted. Yeah, I,
2: I think the, in the music is a very good bridge between, you know, the nostalgia of the past and present day, and it helps you to connect the two of them. Also, I think ultimately with drama and comedy, if you make have a movie that, uh, a moment that's very dramatic, and also com- and put the comedic moment against it, and make the cut very hard, I think you're emotionally invested in drama, and then you have to laugh mm-hmm. because otherwise you would cry to the next moment. So to to wake them up that that this this is this is. That to crash them against each other, I think, is very effective. I think you obviously want to take the emotional state of of Otto very seriously and and portray it dramatically correctly. But then also, on the other hand, take him out of it to, because ultimately he finds the light and he finds a purpose in life again. And and I think you know the. A lot of the the comedy obviously comes between him and Mariana and the the banter of dialogue and the persistency and a lot of them is played at a doorframe. The doorframe as a metaphor of knocking and opening a door and closing a door and which doors you close to life and which doors you open to life and who do you let in and who doesn't. And I think that, that metaphorical thing is, is also, uh, as on a visual side, just very su- subtle, but uh, it's a good metaphor.
4: Yeah, the film kind of feels like uh, almost surreal at moments, like it's, it's sort of like a metaphor for life, but it's actually a real life because there are people who live in these blocks that all kind of look the same. <laughs> Um, how did you work on actually the visual style on, on making? Because you are this place where we live is is it's not it's not drab, but it's just every house kind of looks the same, and it's like a block. And Otto is very insistent that no one who doesn't live here should even use the road. So how did you work on like sort of trying to? find different angles or try not to make it always look the same and make it you know dynamic on a visual level
2: the first part there's this one part where Otto is by himself so you, you want to try to frame it that ultimately that Sonia, his his wife is missing in these frames so you want to make those frames that there's a there's a void in them mm-hmm. that you that the, his loneliness gets visually more punctuated through the void and you frame things where you should usually in the frame would be someone else but you don't put someone else there so he's alone in the frame and that she is sort of missing, and then you you move into the the sort of the awakening of the neighbors when Mariana moves in with her family, uh, Marisol. That 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 is much more alive. The camera is mostly handheld there because it's it's a lively family. That family is like the kids. The there's total chaos and that house. Is chaos. There's no order every time you cut to auto still frames mm-hmm. so you have the juxtaposition between handheld and still frames between those two characters then they come and mix and ultimately once he awakes to life again the camera starts to move again mm-hmm. it's it's like a, a mixture of both, but it's less still and there's more movement
4: yeah i mean i guess uh, maybe you could tell me a bit about um what you're doing next what is, what is the other film
2: uh the other film is uh, a white bird it's based uh uh, H- R.J. Palacio, who is the author of Wonder, uh, wrote that book, which they made into a film with Julia Roberts and, and Owen Wilson. And and now this this uh, new film, White Bird, is sort of based on her graphic novel. It uh, sort of starts in New York at present day, and then goes uh, back to towards Second World Wars in France, and then and then comes uh, and it goes back and forth between New York present day and and, and the sort of Second World War.
0: Well, thank you very much, Elena. Elena was one of our film critics who joined us on one of our review shows last year, so it was great to get Elena along to talk to Mark Forster whilst he was in town about a man called Otto. Right, now for our final review of the podcast. This is a big one because I think this film is brilliant and I'm so excited that we're able to play it at Picturehouse Cinemas. It's called Tar. It's directed by Todd Field. It stars Cate Blanchett. You may have seen... Uh, some of the buzz around her performance in the film. You may have seen the poster, which he is very much on, <laughs> with, lots, with lots of glowing reviews. But the only opinion that counts right now is Henry and Mahaz, and let's pass over to them to see what they thought of Tar. Lydia Tar is many things...
2: Lydia Tar has also written music for the stage and screen. She is one of only 15 egots, meaning those who have won all four major entertainment awards. Thank you for joining us, Maestro. Thank you.
1: So Maha, the final act, the great climax. Um tar, what's tar about?
3: Oof, what is tar about? Tar. Big ideas, huge huge ideas. Kate Blanchett stars as Lydia Tarr, a female composer at the top of her game who got to the top in an environment that maybe isn't the same environment that she is working in now. She lives with her wife, played by Nina Hoss, who's a violinist at the Berlin Symphony Orchestra, and their daughter Petra, who's probably the only person that Lydia has a non-transactional relationship with. Um, The film is like... It starts out as being like a character study of a really, really, really dedicated artist, a difficult artist, someone who's really uncompromising, but undeniably really talented. I mentioned in my synopsis that she's a female composer, and I said that specifically because gender is a really important theme in this film. Lydia is the kind of woman, who I think we've all met, who doesn't think that gender played a role in her um in her rise. she doesn't think sh- that women you know experience any sort of difficulties in their career they just need to sort of toughen up but also she is someone who will insist on being called maestro instead of maestra she refers to herself as petra's father when she's trying to intimidate someone so i think she's very aware of gender dy- dynamics as the film progresses though it sort of turns into it goes from being a character study and it turns into a thriller So Lydia and her family live in this impenetrable fortress. They live in Berlin in this um, brutalist house that has got concrete walls. It feels impenetrable. But as the film progresses, Lydia's past transactions start to break down these walls. They start to penetrate her life. And she, she tries to kind of dismiss them at first, but over time, they start to become overwhelming she starts to hear things and she starts to have to answer for past behavior that was that she doesn't think was problematic but is problematic in this environment
1: it's interesting hearing your synopsis in that you have this idea of art and truly great art being made by people who have to kind of transgress or have to sin in order to be truly great artistic geniuses and i think it's a really particularly in film it's a really fine line to walk because not least because filmmaking itself has many 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 people who are seen as giants of the form who weren't particularly nice people in their personal lives does this film manage to kind of successfully walk that line between showing a person making art and showing this kind of artistic titan who has to be a baddie do you still feel like she's a character that you can relate to
3: i don't feel like she's a character i can relate to but i think that the film is okay with leaving us in that discomfort lydia herself addresses this conundrum of separating the art from the artist like just having to admit that someone like buck did produce incredible work that you know, made an impact on the world, but also he is a terrible human being. Doesn't answer that question. And I left this film without any answers. I'm not sure my opinion on this matter changed. I don't think it will change anybody's mind. Like it depends on where you come from, what your experiences are, what you bring to this film. But I do think that's the reality of where we're at now with these, um, you know, with, with having to confront this problem. It's such a big problem as well. Like we're talking hundreds and maybe thousands of years of art that was being created in these environments that permitted terrible behavior. And I think the question right now, because, you know, like we work with filmmakers, like, you know, you know, work in a creative field. I haven't seen a world where Arts can be created in a lovely, supportive, non-problematic environment. I would love to see that. I just haven't seen it yet. I don't know what that looks like. Do you?
1: I'm not, I'm not sure I do. And I think it's, it's also interesting that Todd Field, the writer-director, who, who did Little Children and In the Bedroom, but a good, you know, I think we're talking a good 13 years since his last film,
3: Yeah, lots changed. uh, Yeah,
1: exactly. And the film talks about that, right? Like there's a a degree of Lydia is allowed to behave badly until suddenly a technology comes along that makes her bad behaviour very visible, namely the internet and the fact that people can share your behaviour across these new different channels. I've seen a few films that struggle with that idea of showing the internet on screen and showing the effect of cancel culture and all the other things that spin off from the internet. It sounds like this film does it really well in terms of showing the effect of cancel culture, as well as, you know, showing that that's a human impulse that is coming from human beings. It's not the technology itself that makes this world what it is. It's just the world was always there, but now we're more able to see it.
3: Totally. It weaves in uh, the use of social media really beautifully. It makes it really organic. Like um, Lydia is someone who um, listens to podcasts. She has a Wikipedia page that she's concerned with. (laughs) You know, she reads tweets about herself this film doesn't demonize social media but it does kind of shine a light on how one-sided it can be there is a scene where she is giving a guest lecture at juilliard and she discusses the problem of art versus the artist and she kind of bulldozes her way through the arguments she doesn't do it in a way that's like too bullying but you know she she doesn't really let anyone else speak that lecture is filmed and then put online but it's edited in a way that makes it look a lot worse than it actually happened in real life and we as the audience get to see that like social media uh can be skewed to look one way but also we know that like the argument itself like like the reality wasn't that much better but it wasn't as bad so it kind of leaves us thinking oh, what do we do with this information i think it just left me thinking Everybody should study media studies and <laughs> learn to upgrade their critical facilities. And you know what? Everyone should become a film critic.
0: Well, that was fantastic, Henry and Maha. And I, I mean, I think Tar is one of those films that you can talk about for ages. There's a lot going on in this film. I've only seen it once. I am desperate. For it to open on the 13th of January, so I can go and see it again. I really want to see this film again. Um, it's such a good movie. There's so many wonderful actors in the film. Though, I have to shout out Nina Hoss, uh, who in the movie plays Kate Blanchett's partner. She's so good. Also, Mark Strong makes an appearance. One of my favourites. Always nice when Mark Strong comes out to play. Uh, yeah, but yeah, this is a this is an incredible film. It's really, really powerful stuff. Uh, so do see it on the big screen. Whilst we had Maha and Henry in the building to record the latest edition of the podcast, we always like to ask our guest critics what's currently on in cinemas that they would recommend and what they are looking forward to seeing in the coming months.
1: Maha, what's still in cinemas that you're looking forward to uh, watching or watching again?
3: The Banshees of Inner Sharon, which stars Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell. And it's written and directed by Martin McDonagh. I love that film. I watched it at the London Film Festival. Uh, it's still out in cinemas now. It um, explores like really difficult themes like masculinity, mental health, facing your own mortality, and it doesn't in a way that's like funny, but also quite heartbreaking. And also Colin Farrell's performance. His eyebrows do so much lifting. I mean, I just loved that Martin McDonagh was like, "Dude, you have eyebrows. Use them." I love it. I love that film. And a sassy sister because his sister's character, I am his sister. I'm the person who's like, stop complaining. You're being ridiculous. Talk to your friend. So Henry, what film do you enjoy that's still in cinema?
1: Uh, So I am looking forward to seeing again uh, Rashomon, which is Akira Kurosawa's 1950s thriller about uh, a murder in the woods. And it's a murder in the woods told from four different characters' perspectives. So you have uh, the bandit, the samurai, the samurai's wife, and a woodcutter. And by telling the story four different times in four different ways, Kurosawa basically what became the Rashomon effect, which you see in films now like Elephant and The Usual Suspects, where you think you know what's happened in a film, but because another character is telling you a different perspective, um, you find out something completely different, and you're never really truly sure who to trust. So essentially the idea of the unreliable narrator but in cinema.
3: I've heard of that effect. Now now I know where it comes from. Yeah. I'm definitely going to watch that. And they do
1: I mean it, it goes to the weirdest places because if you watch basically any long running American sitcom they almost always have a kind of Rashomon effect episode where something happens to one character and then hilariously another character sees it in a different way. So it spreads out to these odd odd little places in screen culture which I think is really interesting um and russian one is playing uh as part of the bfi's kurosawa season which runs january to february
3: okay henry it's the start of year what are you looking forward to coming out this year
1: well i'm looking forward to going to the cinema as much as possible namely because um cinemas are warm right and it's cheaper than heating your house a lot of the time but i'm specifically looking forward to john wick 4 which I, has a ridiculous subtitle i can't remember the last one was parabellum was it but like john wick 4 out in march uh I just think there is something, I don't know what else can you say about Keanu Reeves, but there's something timeless about Keanu Reeves throwing various degrees of bad men through various plated glass and kicking them in the head. I just don't know what it is. It hits something in my lizard brain that just makes me want to watch it again and again and again. I have massive crush on Keanu. I also just think that he can do no wrong in my eyes. I just think he's wonderful. Elsewhere, later on this year, we've got the new film from Luca Guadagnino, which is called Challengers, and it's about tennis. And I'm a huge fan of watching and playing tennis. he has got, I think it's Zendaya's in it as a championship tennis player, and she gets involved in some sort of love triangle with her fella and then another guy smacking his balls around the court. That's an unfortunate <laughs> phrasing. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a love comedy um, based in the tennis world, which um, I'm really looking forward to that as well. What about you, Maha? What are you looking forward to?
3: Well, speaking of uh, very fit men who do amazing choreography, I am looking forward to Magic Mike's Last Dance. Yeah, we love Magic Mike in this house. Uh, Magic Mike is basically like an old school musical born into the 2020s. And the film has Selma Hayek and Channing Tatum. And I think Channing Tatum is this generation's Gene Kelly. I, I'm saying this with all seriousness. I think he is a really, really talented physical performer. And I think his talent is underappreciated. Like that scene in Magic Mike Two, where he goes from like welding or something to—I think he's
1: angle grinding. Actually, Mahar, I think you'll find it's angle grinding because there's lots it of sparks. It was angle grinding. Yeah.
3: Yes. <laughs> How do you know that? I've watched that scene. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> Same. Same, but I always miss the beginning. But yeah, so that scene where he's angle grinding. Thank you, Henry. Um, and it turns into this amazing choreographed dance in this enclosed space reminds me of fred astaire gene kelly and all of those like golden era dancers. uh the nicholas brothers as well so i think there's a lot more to these films than they're given credit for my second pick <laughs> is cocaine bear
1: what is cocaine bear
3: do you remember snakes on a plane
1: i do yeah
3: What was Snakes on a Plane about?
1: Well, I mean, the synopsis is too rude. There's one line that Samuel L. Jackson says that we have to get these something snakes off this something plane. And that's essentially the plot, right?
3: What do you think Cocaine Bear is about?
1: Oh, it's not about bears on cocaine, is it? It can't be.
3: It is about a bear on cocaine. So there's this bear in a forest. I know, it's actually really sad, but also weirdly like, ah. So there's this bear in a forest. It's the 80s. He finds some cocaine and he eats it all and then he goes on a rampage. I can't tell whether it's a comedy or a tragedy because this is objectively tragic but also like cocaine bear.
1: So, Maha, have you got anything you want to plug?
3: So this year I'm really looking forward to uh, working on another season of MTV Movies, which is a show that I film and edit. Uh, and it can be found on YouTube. I'm a f- freelancer, so I work a few places. Um, and you can also find my work um, on Linktree, because I'm too lazy for a website. You just have to type in my name. The good thing about me called Maha Al-Badrawi is that there's very few of me. And you can also find me on Twitter under my name. And you can also find me on Instagram under my name. I'm too old for TikTok. I have an account. I lurk there sometimes. But you, if you try and find me there, you will be really disappointed.
1: And I'm, I'm too old for any social media, but I would just implore people to go to the BFI YouTube channel where you can see amazing video work, including some of Maha's stuff, which is really good, really stupendous. And also just like to plug again the BFI's upcoming Kurosawa season, which runs January and February at the BFI South Bank and in cinemas across the nation.
0: But well, there we go. A packed episode. We've had reviews. We've had interviews. There are so many films out in cinemas which we didn't have time to mention on the show, like Sam Mendes's new film, Empire of Light, like Damien Chazelle's new film, Babylon, and, and things that are still playing like Vicky Creeps in Corsage and, and, and so much more. January is a stacked month. I will keep saying that. Actually, I will also say one more thing. Sorry to keep you listeners, but there 's a film coming out called ennis main it 's by Mark Jenkin who directed bait a couple of years ago super lo fi shot on film and 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 the same methodology has carried over, albeit in color uh, now for ennis Main, it 's a psychedelic folk horror with lots boiling underneath the surface and, and it 's so good and Mark is actually doing a q and a tour right now as you 're listening to this. Uh, go to the Pitch House website for details if you might be interested in, in seeing that. Uh, but if you if you can't make a QA screening, the film opens on the 13th of January. We are playing at Pitch House Cinemas and really proud to be doing so. Uh, so that's just a little a little bonus recommendation from me. Um, it's about 90 minutes long. It's it's if you like 70s horror movies like The Wicker Man or The Shout or that kind of thing, uh, I think you will enjoy this. And if you want something totally different, it's worth taking a punt on. But that is truly the end of the show now no more bonus reviews thank you so much for listening and, and for tuning in to the first episode of the year uh, if you uh, scroll through the feed you'll see that we've done a number of interviews and, and other review shows um, which uh, which you might enjoy do subscribe if, you, uh, if you're if you on a pod capture which allows you to do that things like Spotify or, or Apple Podcasts so you'll never miss an episode whilst we do these shows once a month we do have interview episodes which drop sort of as and when People are available. Sometimes uh, interview times don't fit in uh, with our monthly recording schedule, so we might put out a bonus episode or two in between these monthly episodes, uh, where we just chat to a filmmaker for a bit. A big thank you to Henry Barnes, to Maha Albidrawi for their time, for their opinions, for recording this episode with us. As they say, you know, do check out their work. They're both people I follow on social medias. Uh, Maha makes really wonderful videos and and does a lot of content creation. And uh, Henry's all things digital at the BFI uh, and a good all-round egg. We could not make this podcast without Kobe Omanaka or Stripped Media, who produce the show. And you wouldn't be listening to anything right now if it was not for the wonderful work of Maddie Searle, our editor, who we're always very pleased to work with. Thank you, Maddie, for your work on this episode to check out what's on at your local picture house cinema, please visit picturehouses.com to contact us on social media please tweet Instagram, Facebook at picturehouses with an S on the end, and, uh, and yeah I've been Sam Clements, thank you for listening we'll be back in February with another episode of The Love of Cinema, whatever you end up seeing at the movies, I hope you enjoy goodbye